So anyway, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into the scriptures. Father, once again we come to your word, uh, Lord, your eternal word. We come with um, ears and eyes that are um, in time. And so we look back to read um, and to hear your spirit through, uh, through the voice, through the pen of your prophets, your apostles, uh, Christ himself, Lord. We ask that you would help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, that we would be attentive um, we would be attentive not just to the, the letter, but the spirit of your word. That we might see you revealed in all things. Lord, that we might perceive more than just words on a page. Lord, we might be the body of Christ in a broken and fallen world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Aru, aru, arad, hashud. Bah, lay it bare, lay it bare to the foundations. The cry in Psalm 137.7 um, recorded of the people of Edom as they rejoiced and celebrated over the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. That they mocked the people of Judah. And Obadiah is a prophet sent to Edom to tell them what God thinks about what they had to say. Um, when somebody suggested Obadiah, believe it or not, I have preached on Obadiah before, which is not a common situation. Uh, when I was the assistant pastor at a church in, uh, in Litchfield, um, some Wednesday nights the pastor, we had Wednesday night prayer meetings, and some Wednesday nights the pastor would just be so exhausted he couldn't preach, and so I always had to have a one-off sermon ready in case he couldn't make it. And so I had sermons on Second John, Third John, Jude, Obadiah, um, you name a short book, I was planned um, to have that ready to be able to do a study. So, um, and so, we're, so when somebody suggested Obadiah, I said, oh, cool, um, and uh, then couldn't find any of my notes, so I got to write everything again. Um, but uh, so there's a, in the bulletin there's a there's a little bit of a little bit of history about Obadiah um, and who Edom was so that you're aware. Um, basically, giving it to you very briefly, Israel is descended from uh, Isaac's son Yaakov or Jacob, um, who takes the name Israel after he wrestles with God, um, and he has an older twin brother Esau, um, uh, whose name uh, he he's called Adam or Edom, which means the red, the man. Um, and uh, there's a whole interaction between the two of them um, in the book of Genesis, and Esau goes off, and he establishes the, the people of Edom around a place called Mount Seir, um, which is a mountainous uh, area down south of Israel in what today would be um, southern Jordan, northern Saudi Arabia. Um, it's not a pleasant place to live, um, it's, it's a place where you basically, um, you kind of hang, uh, your, your hopes on rain and the mountains and everybody lived in the mountains and, um, not a very prominent place. Um, if you remember Indiana Jones and the last crusade, um, the place that they, they filmed the last part of Indiana Jones, and the last crusade, that, that city that's cut into the rock wall, 
Um, that is in the mountains of Mount Seir. That's called Petra, which is Greek for rock. Um, and it's a town of the Edomians, who were the later Edomites. They literally carved buildings into the cliff sides of Edom. But if you, you see, the, it's not exactly idyllic, right? It's not a great place to live when you have to build houses out of existing cliffs. Um, so uh, so this, is, this is where they were. Um, they were uh, kind of agrarian. They were pastoral. Um, they, they had a lot of sheep and goats, and um, they were ruled by, uh, most English Bibles translate them as dukes, um, but that's really anachronistic. Duke is a Roman title. Um, it, they were not kings. Um, they were just kind of tribal leaders, and it was a very loose federation of people. Um, and for a long time, they were, they were actually ruled from the king, time of David until um, around the time of Ahab, during the reign of Jehoram of, of Judah, uh, they were ruled over by Israel. Israel actually ruled over Edom, um, and then they rebelled, um, and then just became a pain in the neck for the next hundred years or so. Um, and they were they were difficult to rule. I mean, if you if you know anything about uh, like a, uh, the difficulties of dealing with. Um, Afghanistan, right? If you've, you've read any of the, the stuff about the tribal nature of Afghanistan, very rocky land, very difficult to control because if you control one village, one valley over, they, don't, they just go and do their own things. You go to that valley and then this group rebels and that's kind of how the Edomians were, how the Edomites were. They're, they were just kind of a, a, a pain and they were kind of down there and they would just harass people and, and cause trouble. Um, and so in 586 B.C., the, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar uh, laid siege to the, the Israelite, the Judean city of Jerusalem, and they took it captive. They, 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 they literally, when you read that line, lay it bare, lay it bare to the foundations, that's literally what they did to Jerusalem. There are next to no remains of that period of Jerusalem left anywhere underneath the strata of modern Jerusalem. It was completely destroyed. Um, and so, uh, so this is this is kind of a, a situation. Now, the reason that the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, the reason that Israel was taken to exile, was that they had rebelled against their God. They were worshiping false gods. They were not observing the jubilees and the sabbaths. Um, they were they were not they were desecrating the temple. There was a lot going on. So Judea was legitimately the Jews, the the Hebrews, the Israelites were legitimately being punished by God. But the Edomites, um, when that happened, uh, had something to say. And we're going we're gonna to read the book of Obadiah because Obadiah, it's only one thing, it's only a few verses long. It's not very long. If you're looking for it, um, if you get to one of the big prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. All right? So it's the fourth little book after Daniel. Or you can just look in the table of contents, which would also work. Um, it's so small, and I, I put a little bit of this in there, but it's so small that this this actually set, this set of books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, uh, Habakkuk, ha, uh, ha, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, is just called the Twelve um, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, they just stick them all together. Um, Obadiah is right before Jonah, which is usually the one minor prophet people are familiar with. But here it is, Obadiah, um, and it's just one chapter, Obadiah 1, the vision of Obadiah, that's just the title in the first verse. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, 
We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau, remember Edom is Esau, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So this is, he's saying, if somebody said this to you, if this was the situation you were in, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in their day of ruin. Do not boast in their day of distrust. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those in the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors, or chosen ones, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, what this is, is this is a a declaration. It's a declaration against Esau for what they have done. Um, Because as the the Judites were being carried captive, they were mocking them, they were watching what was going on, they were were essentially uh, joining in and celebrating the destruction of God's people. And so Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, he asks a question in verses 1 through 9. What if this had happened to you? 
And, and this, this seems like an interesting way to ask the question. He says, you know, in verse, if thieves came to you, in verse 5, if plunderers came by night, what if, what, what if this had happened to you? That's what he asks them. And this is a, a super important question, I think, when we're dealing with something like um, the, the mocking of somebody that, the, the, you know, the people of God were being judged, and Edom was mocking them for being judged, and God just started, kind of starts with the first question. If this had been you, would, how would you have felt about the behavior? If, if, if it had been Edom that had been carried captive and it was Judah that was mocking you, how would it have felt? I mean, isn't this a question we ask our kids? You know, One kid makes fun of another kid for getting caught doing something stupid or something, and, you're, and you're like, hey, 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 hey. You know, if this had been you, you wouldn't like, you, you wouldn't like him saying that about you which normally the response from my sisters was, yeah, but it wasn't me. It was him. Um, you know, but, but this, is, this is what he, I mean, he basically says to him, he says, are you so oblivious? Are you so deluded that you don't understand why this is happening? What's going on? And, and you're, you're, you're mocking? What, what if this had happened to you? How would you have felt this? If your allies had been driven, uh, had driven you to your borders, if, if, if those who had been at peace with you had deceived you, Babylon had been at peace with Judah. There had been, there had been negotiations that had been going on for, for decades. What if this had happened to you? Um, and, and the reality is the misfortune of others um, often moves us to a feeling of um, self-righteousness. It often moves human beings. We see somebody else in uh, in misfortune, especially if it's legitimate. It's one thing if it's just accidental or incidental, but you know, you, you see something getting somebody getting their comeuppance for what they have been doing. Isn't human nature to look at it and go, "Told you so." All right. Um, you know, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's elements to, I mean, have you ever, you ever had one of those situations, not that this ever, ever happens to me, but you ever had one of those situations where like somebody stumbles or falls, you're, you're like walking and somebody like trips over something and you're like, ha ha ha, and then you fall, (laughs) right? Uh, you know, um, that, that kind of a situation, it's kind of the same, it's like, oh, well, we see somebody, they get their comeuppance and we kind of want to, we're like, we're like, ah, you deserved that. You deserve that. You you should have known better. I mean, I have this I, I have this in my nature, and maybe it's just me, but I have a tendency. If somebody gets what they deserve, I have a tendency. My natural response to it is, is ha ha, you know. And and that's what if that happened to you? What would your response be? That's what he asks them. It's a very simple question. And it, and it highlights the reality of our humanity, our human response. And it's important we understand it's a human response. When somebody gets what they deserve, we have a human response that says, you got what you deserved. But the Edomite behavior doesn't, isn't just acknowledging the justice of the situation, but it's relishing the justice. It's reveling in what happened. Look at, look at the Edomite behaviors in verse 11, right? Um, because of the violence done to your prophet, your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off. On, that's verse 10. Verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. They stood back and watched. 
They saw Judah, they saw the problem that was happening, and not only did they not try to help, they sat back with a bucket of popcorn to watch. This is going to be good. They, and, and their passivity is as bad as the active act of the Babylonians of the, of the punishment that was coming. See, <clears throat> um, we expect our enemies to steal from us. We don't expect our neighbors. Now, sometimes they're the same thing, but generally speaking, our, we don't expect our friends to steal from us. And, and for Judah, I mean, Edom, they had a difficult relationship, but they had this long history together. They were descended from two brothers, and it had always been a little bit of a tension, you know, but you know how it is with family, right? I mean, you can, we can make fun of each other, but you dare not make fun of one of us. We will tear you apart. That's how the vitros work. If you have any questions about that, just say something bad about me in front of one of my sisters. They will beat you to no... I don't do it for them, but they do it for me. Um... Now, it's one of those things, it's like, you know, in your family, you're, you're like, well, we can, inside the family, we can criticize them, but you don't bring criticism from outside. They, so it's kind of one of those things, it's like, okay, well, you know, Edom and Israel, they have kind of this tense relationship, but when the Babylonians come, you know, Edom's got your back, you know, they're going to take care of you. And instead, Edom stood back, they just stood back from their mountaintops and laughed. They gloated over the disaster in verse 12. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. They didn't just sit back and watch. They gloated over it. Told you so. That was what was going to happen. And then in verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over their disaster. Do not loot his wealth on the day of his calamity. They not only gloated, they not only sat back and allowed this to happen, they not only made fun of them while it was happening, they took advantage of the situation. Once the Babylonians had swept through and taken the, the property of the Judites, they, they went in and picked up all the rabble. They picked up what was left over. They, oh, good pickings, let's see what's left over. The, the Edomites are the equivalent of the people combing through a burned out house trying to find jewelry that they can sell. That's who they are. They're going through what's left of Judah, what's left of Jerusalem, trying to find what they can get for themselves. And then perhaps the craziest one, verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Apparently, they did not even allow the Judites, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, to escape south. They turned them back into the teeth of the Babylonian war machine. Not only were they gloating, not only were they passive, not only were they stealing, but as, as, as fugitives. Now, we're not talking about the rulers of Judah. We're not talking about the kings and princes. We're talking about the women and children of Judah trying to escape the Babylonian war machine. And Edomites said, we don't want you here. You go back. You go back. You go back. We don't want you here. And you know, this is one of those things that I, I want to I bring up a little bit of a distinction that, that come, flows out of this about two words that get used in the, in the modern vocabulary that are worth distinguishing. And those two words are mercy and compassion. 
There is a difference between mercy and compassion. Mercy is something we show to the guilty in a time of distress. Compassion is something we show to the innocent in a time of distress. See, mercy is that a a murderer doesn't get the death penalty even though maybe he deserves it. That's mercy. Compassion is that that murderer's children are taken care of by people who provide for them because they were not responsible. So there's a difference between those two things. And they get kind of gumbled together. Is gumbled the word? I mean, Brian gumbled, but that's not. Um, they, get, they get tumbled together, right? They get rolled together and we kind of go, mercy and compassion, you know. Oh, why don't you show compassion? Why don't you show mercy? But they are different things. Mercy is when the guilty are shown lenience, all right? Mercy is when God forgives sinners. Compassion is when he blesses the innocent despite the guilt around them. And and the Edomites, Israel deserved the punishment they were getting. The, the, the elders, the leaders of Israel, the kings of Israel of Judah, they, they deserved it. They were, they were leading a nation astray. They were getting into idolatry. They were doing all kinds of things. We talked about Ezekiel a few weeks ago. Ezekiel sees a vision of the elders worshiping false gods in the temple. It is not a good situation for the leaders, but for the common man, they had nothing to do with that. The women and children of Israel had nothing to do with that. And yet Edom was not even extending compassion to them. So Edom's behavior is so thoroughly detached from any kind of compassion or grace. Even though, and this is the important part, even though Judah deserved everything she got. Even though the kingdom of Judah deserved the punishment of God, deserved to be conquered by the Babylonians, not only deserved it, but had been warned repeatedly that that was what was going to happen if they didn't straighten up their act. This isn't like God one day went, that's it, I'm done. God, for centuries, God had been saying to them, if you, don't wa- if you don't follow what I'm telling you to do, I send prophets, I send preachers, I send pestilence, I'm trying to steer you toward being the covenant people that you can be, and they continue to reject him, they continue to turn on him, so that they deserved the punishment they were getting. And Edom had zero grace about the justice of God. They danced, they sang, they took, they rejected the people of Judah. Did the Edomites have to take up arms to fight the Babylonian machine in order to um, be on Judah's side? No. In fact, that would have been wrong of them. This was God's chastening on Judah. They didn't have to go to war. They didn't have to send emissaries. But they could have shown some dignity and some grace. 
And the reality is, not only did they have no respect for Judah, they had no respect for Judah's God and his justice. And that was really the problem. They reveled in the disaster that had been brought upon Judah because basically the argument was, that's what you get for worshiping that God, for being those people, for doing that thing. That's what you get. So in the last part of the book, then from verse 15 to 21, Yahweh reveals something that maybe, maybe Edom should have thought about ahead of time. The day of the Lord is near, in verse 15, upon all the nations. Now, here's the implicit question of these verses. I'm not going to get into all the verses. Here's just the implicit question of this. If God would do this to his covenant people, what makes you think you're so special? Oh, Edom, you up on your rocks. You think you've skated. You think that God is only worried about Jerusalem and Judah. You think that you've skated because you're not a part of this thing. If God is God and he is willing to punish and bring justice upon his covenant people, boy, are you in trouble. Because they violated the the law, but they're going to be restored. You read the last half of this. He says, I made a covenant with them. I'm going to restore them after they've been chastened and purified and after really ultimately after Messiah comes and preaches to them and brings resurrection to the dead this is going to, they're going to be they're going to be restored but you Edom you think you're special just cuz you didn't get a whooping this time Now I'm using the metaphors that I think are flowing from my childhood but one of the things you never ever did when one of your siblings was being punished was laugh because my father who didn't like paddling us to start with would turn around and look at you and go are you sure that was a wise decision because you could be punished with the kid who had done something wrong for laughing at them being punished I don't know if any of you had parents like that I had parents like that um, my dad had this thing, my, my, wife, my wife and daughter, um, I have this thing about turning lights off in the house. I, I walk around and turn lights off. Uh, I have a thing about folding towels. I, I, towels have to be folded before they go. They, like, it's just a thing. I just, I have to do. And part of the reason was, as a kid growing up, if you didn't turn the light off when you left a room, my father would have you stand at the light switch and go, I will turn the lights off when I leave a room. I will turn the lights off when I leave a room. I will turn the lights off. You know that scene in Simpsons where where Bart is writing things on the blackboard? That was my childhood. Um, If towels were not, if a towel was not folded, all right, when we were doing laundry and we didn't do it right, he would have us refold every towel in the closet. And you would go, this is how towels are folded. This is how towels are folded. All right, that, that, it was, that was how we were. If one of us was in the midst of that, um, I remember distinctly a, a moment where my sister, I'm not sure what toy it was, but she had left some toy in the middle of one of the main rooms of the house, 
and my dad had her picking it up and putting it, on, putting it away, like carrying it to her room and putting it away, and then bringing it back and putting it down, and then picking it up, saying the whole way, I will pick up my toys when I am done with them. Well, my older sister and I, because obviously it was my little sister, Kristen, that did this, um, my older sister, Kate, and I could not help it. It was the funniest thing we had ever seen, all right? Needless to say, my dad went and found two of our toys and put them on the ground and said, and now? And so for the next half an hour, the DeVitro kids were picking the same toy up, going to their separate rooms, bringing it back, putting it back, which, of course, we were laughing the whole time, but not in front of him. (laughs) The reality is, just because God punishes his people, that does not mean that they've been singled out and everybody else skates. That's the message of Obadiah. Obadiah's message is, this isn't just about Judah. Now, Judah has a special place in God's economy in the Old Testament. They they are really meant to be the emissaries of God to the world, to the nations. They have a special role. They have a special revelation. There's a lot going on. But their purpose is not insular. It's not just for them. This is a message to the world. God is sending a message to the world through them. And they're going to be restored, but judgment and justice are coming. He says, the house of Jacob shall be fire. I love this line in verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. Oh, you think it was bad for Jerusalem, he says. Jerusalem is going to be the flame, and you're going to be the kindling. You're going to be consumed so fast by the judgment that's coming. This, this is, this is a, a big old thing. So what can we take as an application of this rather odd passage of Scripture? If there's one practical application you can take out of this, I hope, and there's hopefully a lot that you can dig around and find and have a conversation about, and, but if there's one application that I would take from this, it is this. We always need perspective when we pass judgment on those who are being judged. Now, most of us, uh, how many of you were born after September 11th, 2001? One, all of you were. (laughs) <laughs> not her, but you two were, all right? Abby was. All right, so all of the heirs, kids. So you do not, if you were born, if, even if you were born before about 1997, 1996, you don't remember a world before September 11th. Some of us remember a world where Arabs didn't even land on our radar. Islam was just not something people talked about. And then I remember being in my 20s when, when, this, when it happened, when the planes crashed in the World Trade Center, and the, the anniversary is coming up, the, the 19th anniversary is coming up. And I remember the rage, the absolute anger of the American people at anything that was dark-skinned and from the Middle East or even remotely close to the Middle East. 
I remember the, the outrage of just punish somebody. Somebody's got to pay for this. The, the malice and the rage and, the, and, and people watching, with, and, and I was part of it. I, I'm not going to say that I, I did, there wasn't a part of me that enjoyed watching all those bombs drop and all the, all the, the, the military buildup. Finally, we're going to get some justice for this. And maybe 19 years gives us a little perspective. Maybe being involved in the longest war in the history of America gives us a little perspective. But the, the, the reality is our responses to someone getting maybe even their just dessert have to be filled with grace. It saddens me. And I want to put a practical edge to this. It saddens me when people lessen the injustice of, of, of someone being shot by the police by saying, yeah, but that person had a rap sheet. But yeah, that person had, it, they, they basically had it coming. They didn't get punished before. And forget, forget racial, all that nonsense, all right? But, 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 Forget all of that. When we sit there and go, well, they were justified. The police were, even though he wasn't doing anything that time, he deserved it another time, and therefore he deserved it. Bring some grace and moderation. There are fatherless children. There are wounded families. There are broken hearts. And last time I checked, the church of Jesus Christ was called to heal. We were called to redeem. We were called to compassion, even in justice. It doesn't mean we have to walk around and apologize for things that we weren't involved in, but it also means we don't go to the other side and go, they deserved it. It was coming to them. I saw it this week. Uh, in in Wisconsin, the that, that kid that shot a couple of guys that were, as near as I can tell, they were going to do some bad to him. He took out a weapon, which apparently he was not supposed to have because he had crossed state lines with it, get into the details of all that. There's got to be some grace and compassion. And people say, well, those guys had a rap sheet. They, they had a record. He didn't know that. It's not like he ran a background check on him before he shot him. And, and we can't go through the world passing judgment as if we sit aloft in the mountains of Edom while Jerusalem is laid waste. Now it's one thing to say, well, so our response should be to go join all of these organizations that we don't agree with philosophically. Because they stand for us together in this one position. I, I tell you a, a side story about this. I participated in one, I don't, I'm, this is going to offend somebody, I know it's going to be. I've participated in one political march in my entire life. It was a Vermin Supreme rally. No, no. Um, it was the pro life march in Washington, D.C. I went as a chauffeur, a uh, chauffeur, as a chaperone. Um, same thing. <laughs> I was driving a bus, a bunch of teenagers. 
we used to joke around with Ariel. There was always, whenever she went on a field trip, there was the Chaper 1 and the Chaper 2 and the Chaper 3. Um, but but uh, I, I went as a chaperone, and I was there. And here's my thing. The reason I've never gone back, although I am as pro-life, as pro-life, as pro-life as a person can be, I believe that every human being should have the right to self-determination, and that includes children in the womb. And if it offends you, I'm sorry, not sorry. Um, but I went to this rally, and I looked around at the people that were marching with us and asked questions about the organizations they were a part of. And I said to my pastor, I was a youth pastor, or an assistant pastor at the time, I said, I can't participate in this. Those people represent anti-Christian causes. Just because they believe one thing that I agree with does not mean I'm going to put a label of approval upon them. And, and, and I should be able to stand for an issue and stand for a belief without having to align myself with a label or an organization. My responses should be in moderation, and they should be full of grace. I can be opposed to racial inequality without joining one movement or the other and slapping a, po- a, 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 a sticker on the back of my car and saying, I support this group. I should be opposed, I should be able to be opposed to a politician's positions on biblical grounds and not have to choose another politician I'm opposed to on biblical grounds. As Christians, we should stand for the values of the kingdom and our king, and we should do it in grace. Now, some of you, you go different sides of things, that's okay. But the lesson that we draw out of Obadiah is moderation in our responses to God's justice. How many times have you heard somebody talk about the book of Revelation as God brings judgment on the world? And in reality, the book of Revelation is about God doing absolutely everything he can to call everyone who will come to himself. And and the purpose of God's judgment is not for God's people to sit there and go, ha, you got what you deserved. But rather for us to step into a situation with grace and moderation. We don't have to take up arms against the war machine of Babylon to support Jerusalem and God's people and his covenant. But we also don't have to mock those who are enduring his justice. Now, I know there's going to be all kinds of questions about this. Do I believe that America is under God's judgment? Everybody's under God's judgment, just so you know. It's not like God takes notice occasionally and goes, oh, I should judge them. We are always... What did, what did God say to, Nebu, to uh, Belshazzar through, through Daniel? Many, many tekel ufar sin. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God is always weighing the balances of the people. He is always watching. He is always bringing justice. And so we as his people, our job is to bring grace. We don't have to bring the judgment. He'll do that. We can be the agents of grace. We can be the hands and heart and compassion of God even in the midst of his judgment. And even in the midst of the chaos of a sinful world, we can still moderate our response. One last story and then I'll be done. 
I think I've told this story before. Um, I was sitting in a, a revival meeting when I was a teenager, and the preacher started getting on um, the issue of homosexuality. And he got so red-faced. Now, some of you from the South, you know what it means when a preacher gets red-faced. Um, some of you don't. Um, you've never seen a red-faced stump-sucking preacher. Um, some, of you, some of you have. Um, they get to a point where they got a microphone in one hand and a hanky in the other, and they are wiping their brow because they are sweating profusely because needless to say, they have eaten one too many Whopper. And they, they, are, they are working... They are working the message. Well, he started going on and on and on and on about if there were any, if there were any, he used words I'm not going to use. In this church service, I've got a baseball bat in my trunk. You can, I'll meet you out back in the yard. And he started getting all worked up. And I just remember sitting there and just doing this in the chair as I, I just got lower and lower. In my, because to me, it was absolutely unfathomable that a Christian would consider that the response to human sin was a baseball bat and violence. I'm like, how does that work? And it took me years to work out that he, he was wrong. That the compassion of the gospel, God brings justice. We are meant to, bring, to be agents of grace even in His justice. We're not crusaders. We're not crusaders. All right, one last story. <laughs> got to go medieval on you. Janet's got to go. It's one story too many. <laughs> in the midst of a crusade in Egypt... There was a crusade, it was, I believe it was the fifth crusade, third or fifth, I can't remember which one. I know that you guys are going to Google it and check it. Francis of Assisi insisted on boarding the boat that was going to Egypt. He was one of the most popular preachers in Italy at the time. He was, he was known throughout Europe. Everybody was wondering what he was going to do. Was he going to bless the crusaders as they went to wipe out the Saracens? This is absolutely historically true. It's not just a myth or hagiographic story. It's been told both by the, the Muslim side and by the Christian side. The boat landed, they went to the camp, and the first thing Francis Assisi started doing was asking where the sultan's camp was. Where is the camp of the leader of the, of the Muslim armies? And he kept asking, he kept asking, he kept asking. He was driving everybody nuts. Finally, he went out to the edge of the camp. He saw where the Muslim camp was. He went to the Muslim camp. He walked up to the guards and said, I'm Francis, and I'm here to talk to the sultan. They immediately arrested him. They were going to do all kinds of things to him, but then they knew there was a reputation about this, this celebrity preacher. He really was kind of a celebrity at the time. They bring him before the sultan, and they say, thinking that he's an emissary. You know, that the Christians are going to, the Crusaders are going to sue for peace or something like that. He says, I just wanted one opportunity. His exact words, I, I don't remember, um, and they've probably been changed over time, but I just wanted this opportunity to tell you about Christ because I believe that you need to hear. The Sultan laughed at him, threw him out. Francis got on a boat and went home. 
His entire purpose on going in the whole crusade was to preach Christ to the Muslim sultan. That was it. He wasn't going to bless the crusaders. He wasn't going to join in their battle. Even though he believed that the Muslims were wrong in their beliefs, he, he was thoroughly, thoroughly an orthodox, medieval, orthodox Christian. He just wanted to preach Christ to everyone he could, to his enemies and his friends alike. Now you could disagree with Francis's theology. There's lots to disagree with. But maybe his motivation to bring Christ into every scenario will preserve us from winding up being Edom, sitting in the mountains, judging those who are judged. I think, by the way, this is what God may, Jesus meant when he said, judge not, lest you be judged. Not that we can't have opinions, not that we can't call wrong things wrong, but we're not the judges. We're the emissaries of grace and compassion. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for your grace poured out upon us, upon me, upon each believer individually. Grace being poured upon those who have not yet come to a time and place where they put their faith in you. But your grace is still manifest upon them. You are still speaking, your spirit still calling. And Lord, we know you are a just God. And that sin will be punished, justice will be done, that honor and righteousness will win. Lord, when we see the unrighteous judged, help us to see them through broken eyes, through Christ's eyes who looked upon those who crucified Him and said, He looked at them and said, "Don't. this is not them, this is... Don't count this to them. And Father, He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even though they were consciously acting, even though they were doing exactly what they knew they were doing, He knew that grace was needed. May His voice be heard even in the cacophony of judgment. May we be your hands and your feet in a world that needs grace and compassion more than it ever has. Not compromise. Grace and compassion and peace that flows from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever. Go in grace and peace.